a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 149 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As the big voice guy just said, my name is Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster and owner of Game Time Media in the Twin Cities metro area. This show is all about sportscasting, sharing stories, development tips, and the career paths of other sportscasters from around the country and beyond. If you're new to the show, make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on the social media outlet of your choice. This episode is recorded in the almost world-famous Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my basement office in Burnsville, Minnesota. Many of my guests on this show have talked over the years about relationship building and networking and how important they are. And I've gotten feedback from particularly younger broadcasters that they go to conferences, they send the cold call emails, they try to build relationships, but that none of them worked. But here's the dirty little secret that I've kind of learned in my experience, networking, relationship building, whatever you want to call it. Results take a long time. You're really playing a long game when you're trying to build a network. An example that I got two pretty cool opportunities. There's certainly nothing earth-shattering over the last year. One of them was covering a Division I baseball game for, in fact, ESPN Honolulu at U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis. Uh, Their normal guy was covering a basketball tournament. It was the beginning of baseball season. They needed someone in Minneapolis, and we were able to do that for them. And then I got another gig calling a junior college Division I football game on ESPN Plus in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And in both of these cases, I was not looking for extra work. I actually almost said no to the football game because I was already really busy around that time. But I talked myself into it because it was a cool opportunity. But I wasn't looking for extra work. But in both instances, I was recommended by someone that I met years ago through networking efforts. In both of these cases, with the people that recommended, we became friends, kept in touch. Usually a few times a year, we'd have a phone call, a couple texts, and eight to ten years later, they found themselves in a position where they could recommend me for a gig. The whole point being, it doesn't happen quickly. It really is a process, and while it may be frustrating, just know that even when I have not really done a great job of continuing to do this uh, with my new business and my new career. The previous relationships that turned into real friendships still are paying dividends years later. The last thing I'll mention on the topic before we get to our guest, Jake Marsh, is that when you're trying to network, focus on people at your own level. Because it's really, really tempting to when you're at an industry conference or when you're sending cold call emails to send it to your local pro broadcaster or power five broadcaster, those people will usually help you. They'll listen to your tape. They'll give you good feedback. There's no reason not to do it, but don't focus exclusively on that because it's very difficult to have a real friendship when you're in an unequal situation. 
and the people that ultimately will help you finding jobs and recommending you for gigs are going to be the people that you become real friends with. And when you're in an unequal situation, there's always going to be an element of you wanting something from this person, which you know makes it difficult to have relationship of equals, for lack of a better word. If you make friends with people on your level as you're trying to grow in the business, you can listen to each other's tape, you know, vent about the person who got the job over you and how you didn't deserve it, and generally just kind of relate to each other's situation on a better level than what you'd be able to do otherwise. And if you become friends with smart, ambitious people in the industry, some of them will catch a break and make it in a big way. And that's when the magic happens, when you have real friends who want to help you in high places rather than reaching out to the people who are getting 50 emails a week and can't really focus on individuals in that depth or manner. Rant over. This week's guest is Jake Marsh, and he has a unique story in that he really started following the traditional sportscasting path. He went to Syracuse, got a small D1 radio job at the University of Vermont, and looking like he would continue on that trajectory. However, he got a foot in the door at Barstool Sports, which obviously a rapidly growing company, recognized the opportunity and veered in a different direction and now has an awesome full-time career at Barstool Sports creating content and still has probably more Twitter followers than anyone who's ever been on this show before. So I'm really excited to talk to Jake. And Jake Marsh, welcome to the pod. How's it going? I'm great, Logan. Thank you for having me. Excited to chat all things broadcasting with you. You are from Weston, Florida. I don't know much about Weston, Florida, living in Minnesota. Tell me a little bit about how you caught the broadcasting bug in your young days, or did were you a late bloomer? Yeah, so Weston is a suburb of the Fort Lauderdale, Miami area. Um, so I first got my foot in the door with journalism. Uh, actually, with a student newspaper in high school, I was the sports editor or managing editor of uh, the circuit, Cypress Bay High School. It's a really big high school. They actually had an MTV reality show about it like five years before I was a student there. Uh, so it's a big high school newspaper. Uh, that's how I kind of, I guess, got my first itch for journalism and getting the access that you were able to get. And our football team ended up going to the state championship for the first time. Uh, but then when I transitioned over to Syracuse for college, uh, I wanted to, I had interest in trying out the broadcasting side. So I was a broadcast uh, journalism major at Newhouse School at Syracuse University, joined the prestigious WAER radio station, the student radio station that all of the uh, prestigious alums at Syracuse participated in. Z89 was another great radio station, Citrus TV. You get to get some cool opportunities with the ACC network at Syracuse. So from there, it was all systems go on the broadcasting side, and I really never looked back. Working for the school newspaper, I also did that in high school, but my graduating class was about 39. So it was a very small and low-budget student newspaper, and I just remember basically trying to push the envelope and get, like, inside jokes and, you know, Phrases that shouldn't be in there that maybe will go uh, under the sniff test of the adults in. Anything like that with you? 
No, I was pretty straightforward. Even to this day, I'm still a little scared to get outside the comfort zone when it comes to journalism or broadcasting, but I try to loosen up as much as I can. So that's probably why you got into Syracuse, because you paid attention in school and weren't trying to uh, stay out of the principal's office because of articles written in the student newspaper. <laughs> I've always been curious, because we've talked with a lot of Syracuse people on this podcast, I don't think we've ever really gone into the admission process. Uh, we've talked a lot about what happens when you're there and things like that, but uh, we know it's a pretty selective and exclusive group. Walk us through the process of getting accepted to the Newhouse program. Yeah, so it was the fall of 2013, which is crazy. That That's already 10 years ago when I went through this admissions. It doesn't get process. any better. <laughs> I forget if they were through, I think it was called the Common App, or if they had their own private thing. They're a private school. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. But anyways, um, I remember that the biggest thing that stands out is they had admissions people traveling around the country, and they did in-person interviews in Miami. So I remember going to an in-person interview in Miami. And I remember this was my first big quote unquote sacrifice because obviously there's a lot of sacrifice in, in, in this business in terms of timing and never say no to an opportunity. Uh, this interview, admissions interview, was I think at like 2 p.m. on a football Sunday. And I was like, damn, every Sunday of my whole life, I've just sat on the couch and watched Red Zone and watched games. And now I have to go do this. Uh, but that was the beginning of. Like we, like I just mentioned, of just the sacrifice of timing and that interview. I remember leaving it thinking it went really well, and I actually applied to Syracuse regular admission. I grew up a diehard Florida Gator fan, and I applied there. It was my number one school, and I got in. <laughs> and then I didn't get into Syracuse until after that. Because I knew if I got into Syracuse, I would have had to strongly consider it. So if I didn't get into Syracuse, I don't think I would have been that mad because I would have gone to my dream school. But once I did, I knew how to. Re- I had a really tough decision on my hands, and uh, it was. I, I slept on it for a few weeks, and eventually went with Syracuse. Uh, Florida has a great journalism school as well, uh, but I felt like Syracuse was the best option for me, and I'm, I'm happy I went that route. So tell me about the first time that you got a Syracuse blizzard being a Florida kid. Yeah, it was something else. I remember staring outside my Flint Hall dorm being like, whoa, this is sick. Like, this is so cool. This is going to happen every day. And that wore off after about 24 hours. I was like, (laughs) get me out of here. This this is ridiculous. Um, But four winters later, made it through. I had two more winters in Burlington, Vermont. Um, so I feel like I'm a, I'm a winter guy now. One of the cool things that I've seen, they kind of have developed at Syracuse, that ACC Network Plus. It looks like you also were able to get kind of your foot in the door as a production intern with Major League Baseball. It looked like that was during your time in school. So how did those come about and what did you learn from them? Yeah, the, the ACC Network extra broadcasts were very, very helpful um, for us to get those as students. 
I think was really rare. And we all, me and my classmates, we all took advantage of those. You have a full-scale production crew in the new house studios. You get to do as many sports as really you want. They're, they're, I remember doing tennis broadcasts, which is really cool. I love tennis. So that was cool to be a part of that. Some people did soccer, field hockey. I remember calling a triple overtime lacrosse game uh, for Syracuse men's lacrosse against Army. So the opportunities were endless. That was really cool. And then when I entered an MLB network, that was awesome too because while I wasn't on the air, I learned everything about Adobe Premiere. And to this day, I'm still using some of those tricks, uh, those shortcuts for Adobe Premiere for editing. Uh, it's always great to have knowledge about the behind the scenes aspect too, no matter how much you're on the air. What was your graduating year? Was it 2018? Did I read Syracuse 2018? Yeah. Cause I know that that was kind of, I don't know if it was the exact class, but it was right around when a couple, you know, notable broadcasters were going through that program. Uh, Noah Eagle jumps out, drew Carter. Um, I'm guessing you knew them and were kind of involved in, for lack of a better word, the friendly competitive process in that. Uh, what was it like being friends with people while competing heavily against them for, for reps and future positions? Yeah, definitely. Noah and Drew are still to this day two of my very close friends. So they were one year younger than me. They were 2019 and I was 2018. So we overlapped for three years, but you said it right there. It's, it's not a secret as much as we're all friends and we're all very close friends and we all hang out. There's only two headsets for each student broadcast game and there's dozens of us. So uh, I think, yes, it's competitive, but it's not like we're playing a game of basketball. and We're trying to box each other out. Like it, it doesn't get like that. I think a lot of us just focused on our own work, focused on how we can get better reaching out to alums who gave us the time uh, to critique our work. I remember talking to Jason Benetti almost every week and he would critique my work and made me a better broadcaster. Um, so I think a lot of us, all of us just focus on our stuff and try to get as be as better as, as we could uh, each and every rep. Did you play in the uh, newspaper versus radio basketball game? And how did it go? Yes. <laughs> it was a disaster for us. The Daily Orange beat us because WAR had won my freshman, sophomore, and junior year. Our class absolutely blew it. And I think they might still have a winning streak to this day. I'm not sure. Um, but I remember not scoring, missing two free throws, <laughs> maybe one rebound. So it was... <laughs> It was not a performance to remember for yours truly. Uh, it is on my bucket list to just see that game played and laugh at it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's as funny as you'd imagine. I think they still do a uh, a full Z89 radio broadcast. Oh, God. It. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's one of the best nights, though, as as a member of the radio station, for sure. All right, so out of college, you got your first job as the men's basketball announcer at the University of Vermont. Uh, was that just kind of cold application process? Did you have to work any connections? How did that come about, and um, how did you enjoy your time in B 
beautiful Vermont. Yeah, so it was an unbelievable experience. Very fortunate for that to be my first job out of school. Uh, so I graduated May of 2018 from Syracuse and was sitting at home, didn't want to rush the job application process. Uh, knew I wanted to go for a play-by-play gig, but as we all know, it's very competitive, very tough, and you have to be willing to go wherever you, wherever uh, there, the opportunities are right out of school. So I remember getting a phone call uh, from a connection I had made at Syracuse, Howard Denneroff from Westwood One. Uh, I interned for him during my junior year, and he had mentioned that the Vermont job was opening uh, and for me to send over my reel to somebody at the university. So I did that, had an interview. Luckily, it worked out, and that was just a tremendous experience. I'm still friends with, with the players and coaches to this day, uh, it was so cool being on the ins and outs of a D1 basketball school, let alone a school that went to the NCAA tournament my first year. Like I'm, I just think about it every day. I'm so lucky that a year out of school, I got to call a March Madness game. Vermont was a 13 seed, lost to Florida State in the first round. But just being able to go to the selection show, being on the bus, on the flights, we played at Kansas our first road trip my first year. Like That was so cool, and I really take a step back and – Look at how fortunate I was for that to be my first experience out of college. That job, I'm assuming, didn't pay enough to live and pay rent on uh, with the broadcast stipends alone. What did you have to do to kind of just make life work around that position? Basically, bundle up and stay home when there wasn't a game. Um, But yeah, it was a great great first experience. Obviously – the pay is the pay, um, but I only stayed there during the season, so it wasn't a year-round gig. They paid you by the game, um, but yeah, it was it was a little cheaper living expenses than what I went on to in New York and now Chicago. Uh, but yeah, you just got to be very aware of what you're spending your money on during the off time. So what did you do the rest of the year? Uh, The rest of the year, I actually, and I'm sure we'll get into this, I went back home to Florida for a few months, and then the summer hit, and I got my foot in the door at Barstool, and I started as an intern there. Uh, So that kind of created the bridge uh, for the off season. Seems as good a segue as any to mention that, you know, you are working for Barstool Sports now. You started as an intern. How did that bridge come about? It was as close to a lottery system as you could imagine. I remember listening to part of my take. I didn't really know anything about Barstool before uh, I got my foot in the door there. I was I was a big part of my take listener. And I remember I was driving from South Florida up to Tampa. I'm a big Yankee fan, so I was listening to part of my take in the car driving up to to Tampa to see the Yankees play the Rays. Uh, And I remember listening to PMT, and they said they were looking for summer interns. This was the summer of 2019. So I pull over on the highway, take out my phone, submit my uh, resume and write an email to Hank, who's the producer for part of my taping, like, 
here's my resume. Here's what I do. Would love to be involved in any capacity. Again, this is the offseason of college basketball, and I always intended on going back to Vermont for year two, uh, just looking to see how I could get my foot in the door. Somehow he answered back. Somehow he asked me in for an in-person interview in their New York studio. So I booked a flight. Fortunately, I have family that lives in New York City, crashed with them. And they saw my resume. They saw that I came in in a suit. And if you know anything about Barstool, (laughs) unless it's like a special event, suits aren't really a thing. So I came in in a suit and it was Big Cat who whispered to PFC. And this is on camera. I, I can share it with you after. Uh, it's on YouTube still. He whispers to him and then he says to me, how would you like to be our version of Darren Ravel and try to compete with him and beat him to scoops and try out these weird foods and tweet out these weird things? And I said, without hesitation, I'm all for it. This is, like I said earlier, never say no to an opportunity. You never know where this could go. So I said, yes, without hesitation, let's do it. Um, I still don't leave my comfort zone, like I mentioned earlier. Um, but I had a lot of fun with it that summer. Got to do some really weird things. Ran the XFL combine 40 in a suit. Uh, <laughs> what was your time? Dude, I honestly forget, but it was the same time as Ravel, and he was in cleats. And that was like my first viral clip with him. Uh, he was like on the stretching table. He pulled his hammy or something. <laughs> <laughs> but that summer I got to do that. I went to the Nathan's hot dog contest on 4th of July and interviewed Joey Chestnut. So that's how I got my foot in the door. It was really a lottery system. They had hundreds of people apply. And for some reason they picked me. I'm very fortunate for that. It changed the trajectory of my career and I couldn't be more thankful. So getting an internship there is one thing, but now you're working there full time as the sports business reporter. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, that was a title that was introduced from the summer of 2019 because that's what Darren Ravel is. That's not really my title anymore. I'm just a, I guess, generic contributor to the Part of My Take podcast, and I do play-by-play for all of their in-house events as well. I want to talk about doing play-by-play for some of the in-house events because uh, looking them up, they were quite interesting. I saw there was Giant Jenga... Um, rock, paper, scissors, papa shot, ping pong, and cornhole at least just off of a quick glance. How do you do play-by-play for those type of events? Are you doing it kind of tongue-in-cheek, knowing that you know this is kind of uh, intended to be somewhat humorous? Do you just play it completely straight? How do you handle that? I treated those broadcasts, the prep for those broadcasts, the same way I prepped for an NCAA tournament game, the same way I prepped for the college football game. It was a lot of fun. I made my charts, my boards, as we call them in the business, for everyone in the office. I would go up and interview everyone as like a pregame chat, use quotes during the broadcast, study the rules. Uh, we had a full-scale production for those, too. It was called Stool Streams, and it came to an end in New York, but we're going to bring it back here in Chicago. We have a new office that we're going to be able to utilize different games with. Uh, I played it straightforward. All the tactics I used in at Newhouse and at Syracuse, I used on the broadcast there. They would pair me up with someone who was much funnier with me, so that would make it 
more of a light broadcast. Um, but I, I've, I've learned and I think I've progressed and not being as buttoned up as a sport that's supposed to be fun. So this has definitely helped uh, me loosen up a little bit. What does a board for a rock, paper, scissors contest look like? <laughs> so it's basically just quotes and stats. Uh, what like stats do you have on rock, paper, scissors? <laughs> their history against a certain person, how often they throw this, how often they throw that. We have someone in the in the uh, control room keeping track of how often they're throwing everything. Uh, we, I think we played a 10. So it's like wins in this many games this often, throws rock blank percent of the time. <laughs> so it, it sounds crazy, but there is a whole system. It's been a few years, but there was a whole system where someone was tracking every throw that someone was, was t- handing out. So now you're contributing on part in my take. I see you're writing a lot of the um, written content on the Barstool Sports website. Uh, how did you kind of progress through the organization to get to where you are now? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I got my foot in the door with part of my take, trolling Darren Ravel, um, and then went back to Vermont for my second season. And then COVID hit. College basketball, who knows where the sports world was going to go. Uh, and that's when part of my take offered me a full-time job. So I moved back to New York full-time, started contributing to the podcast every episode. Um, And then things just kind of took off from there. I contributing to every show now doing the daily segments, whether it's who's back of the week, fire fest, hot seat, cool throne. Uh, um, Basically, the human encyclopedia for Big Cat and PFT commenter. Anytime they say, Jake, look this up, I look it up. Jake set a reminder. I set a reminder in my phone. Um, and with that, I've been very fortunate to call full-scale broadcast too for college basketball, football, hockey, golf. As uh, Barstool is getting into the live rights game, um, Fortunately, it's all worked out where this is my long-term goal. I always want wanted to be a network broadcaster for a big-time event, and I'm getting those real opportunities here at Barstool. And when I took that interview to troll Darren Ravel four and a half years ago, I never thought opportunities like this would be possible. But I'm very fortunate that it has, and uh, hopefully more to come. So I want to backtrack a little bit. You said you moved to New York City during 2020. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so I, what was that like moving to a place that was in the middle of you know a serious shutdown, and that was kind of one of the epicenters of COVID, where everything was uh, maybe the scariest? What was that process like? Yeah. So right when COVID started, I became full time at Barstool, but I did start remote. I moved. I went back home to Florida just that in March of 2020 when things were just up in the air. Uh, then I moved to. New York full-time July or August. So things were starting to clear up a little bit, but it was still relatively quiet. Um, but I'll tell you this, the rent prices in New York, I wish they would have froze there because they were as cheap as they probably ever were. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was pretty cool because it kind of had New York city to ourselves. Um, obviously serious things were going on, but 
the streets were always empty. Uh, we would go in the office and just our small crew, the office wasn't fully open at the time. Um, but yeah, it was a really unique experience for a city like New York where it's always so jam packed. Having it that empty for a few months just as I moved there full time was certainly an interesting experience. So working on the podcast with Big Cat and PFT commenter, kind of lift the curtain a little bit. What is the process of that show like? Because it's at least designed, maybe it's designed, maybe it's just the way it is that they kind of just sound like, you know, two relatively unprepared guys just kind of saying what they think. Is there more to it to that or is that exactly what it is? They're, the way they act on the air is exactly how they act off the air. However, there's a ton of prep that goes into it, specifically for the football Sunday shows. So Sunday football, we'll go in for the entire slate of games, and then we'll be there until about midnight, 1 a.m. During the later games, they whip out their laptops. They start prepping. uh, They spend about an hour or two each week uh, brainstorming the boomers, the fastest two minutes. That's one of the most popular segments of the show when – they uh, give tribute to Chris Berman's fastest two minutes and they come up with their puns or uh, witty phrases about players or teams. Um, so that'll take a bunch of prep time. Uh, Big Cat and PFT each have, I think, a working Google Doc for each episode uh, just so that if they're watching a game, they can write something down and a thought that comes to mind. So uh, they, they want you to think that they're coming off as stupid. I'm going to give them some credit here. I'm going to pat them on the back and say they are very smart guys. Like, yes, they may say some dumb things when it comes to sports, but they would not be here as the number one sports podcast in the world if they weren't a little bit smart. So I I think they're smart guys. So it's not an act, but a little bit of a shtick. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Um, Like PFT misspells a word in every tweet on purpose. He's not that thumb so that part's definitely <laughs> shtick uh there's actually i don't know if you saw this there's like a viral story going around right now he has this athletic premium plus bit where he'll just take out a word doc and screenshot it about a story so this one he wrote was about how the raiders fired josh mcdaniels and it was uh al davis like writing in a fortune cookie saying you're fired and a lot of <laughs> mainstream media picked it up and that was pft who wrote it um so they definitely are aware when it's bits, but they're very serious, smart guys too at times. So what? How do you kind of find your balance as kind of the, you know, the encyclopedia, the the looker upper guy? Was it? Did that has that come pretty naturally, or did you have to work at it? Yeah, I think it's come pretty naturally. If anyone knows anything about me, if they're ever watching the barstool live stream i'll always have my laptop on me my friends from home they, they know too if we're watching sunday football i'm tracking my fantasy scores with my laptop on me so i've learned to be very quick with the computer and things like that and i think that's what makes uh the relationship between me and them work out so well is because i'm very different from them like yes we have similar interests but the way we operate and our brains operate are so different uh, i obviously come from a different uh educational background than them um, I present myself as a polished broadcaster, journalist on the air. Uh, but I think that's what makes it work so well. The yin and yang, if you will, of the relationship is 
I can rely on them for things, and they can rely on me for things. Barstool Sports, you know, kind of looking at it, I think it'd be irresponsible if I didn't ask about it. You know, they have a little bit of a reputation for pushing some, we'll call them controversial opinions, kind of especially at the top of the organization. And I don't want to, like, get into, you know, why are there, what's right and what's wrong, but I guess have you had any personal dilemmas kind of on the ethical side of things uh, working at Barstool? I have not, no. And this goes back to what I said earlier. Uh, yes, everyone else there may come from a different background than what I come from, but I'm going to hold my ground and be who I am on the air. And I think that's what makes the relationship work so well is I'm not going to give into the peer pressure. They, they've asked me to do things that I was not comfortable with. And I, I say, no, like they're going to, then they respect me for it. Like, yes, they want me to do it. It might be better for content. Um, but I am not going to do that just because they want me to do that. And I think I, I, I really try to hold true to that. Yes, I've definitely loosened up and done some things. I ate 19 hot dogs on an eight-hour live stream. Like, that's not <laughs> that's not going to hurt me or my reputation or my career, but I realize how... Just your stomach. Yeah, just my stomach. I'm not going to do anything that will jeopardize my future, my reputation, or my career, and I, I really value that, and they respect me for that because you know as well as anyone in this business doing a podcast in this industry. It's very competitive. You get one shot, one reputation, and I don't want to screw that up. So um, sure, people can say whatever they want about Barstool, but I know walking the door every day, walking out the door every day, I am who I am, and uh, I'm not going to change that based off who I'm surrounded by. So when you're looking for other you know, freelance or side opportunities to cover other sporting events, do you get any pushback from the other for lack of a word, more serious in air quotes networks, uh, they do they see Barstool and disqualify you, or has that been an issue for you at all? Uh, so far, I've had no instances of that to my knowledge. Um, like I've I've reached out to local schools around the New York area looking to freelance, and the no's are because of availability. Um, but listen, I, I understand this is a very unique path that i'm taking in in the broadcast and journalism world um but i couldn't be happier with how things have turned out so far like i mentioned i've been very fortunate to call a bowl game to call d1 college basketball games on a national network uh corn ferry tour event under the pga tour uh charity hockey game between the fdny and nypd and i i i use everything that i learned and broadcasting at Syracuse and growing up at those events, no matter what the network is, whether it's Barstool or ESPN, and it's worked out so far. And I think a lot of it is because I make it so clear and obvious that, uh, yes, Barstool likes to go towards that line sometimes, but I am not. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hold true to who I am and the broadcasting quote-unquote professional that uh, I am at the company. Well, it's just so interesting because still maybe my best quote of of this entire podcast was when someone said that they talked with, uh, I don't remember, it was either George Lucas or Steven Spielberg, I don't remember, and they said, how do you make it in the movie business? And he stopped for a minute and he just said, 
somehow. You got to find that path. Everyone's is their own and make it work in your your way with the hand you're dealt for lack of a better word. So I just uh, was interested in your thoughts there. What do you see as some of the the cool potential future opportunities? You mentioned that you you know the Barstool Sports has a bowl game that you got to call and it's doing some other stuff. Are they continuing to build on some of those live rights uh, things that you can mention? Yeah, so I don't know when this is going to air, but we're actually less than a week out at the time of this recording of our second annual Barstool Sports Invitational. So Wednesday, November 8th here in Chicago. Uh, it's going to be a doubleheader on a, exclusively aired on our website, barstool.tv. We have... Number 10 FAU, returning Final Four team against the hometown Loyola Chicago team. And then we have a Power 5 game in the second game of our doubleheader, Mississippi State and Arizona State. So the fact that we're calling a doubleheader on our network with four legit teams is so cool. It'll be me in the booth doing play-by-play alongside uh, Dave Portnoy and Dan Big Cat Cats. Uh, So... That'll be the second year. And then, yes, we have the bowl game again, December 30th in Tucson, Arizona. So hopefully we continue on with the live rights. I don't know what the future holds, but I know we have the events in the next few months. Uh, And I mentioned the Corn Ferry Tour we did this past summer. Hopefully we do that again. We had the hockey game between FDNY and NYPD at a sold-out UBS arena, the home of the Islanders. So Fingers crossed that we get as many live rights opportunities as possible because that's the best of both worlds for me. And you just moved to Chicago where you're now, I'm assuming, trying to put down some roots and kind of grow in the market. How has uh, that whole process happened for you? Yeah, it's been great. So about a year and a half, two years ago, Big Cat, who's my boss, the head of part of my take, with PFC commenter, he mentioned that uh, the show is going to be moving to Chicago from New York City. We're going to be opening a brand new office, uh, and I'm welcome to join them if I wanted to. And I pulled the trigger. I've been here for about three months now. We are just about to unveil the grand opening of our brand new office, which is going to be incredible. It's got a full court basketball court, a golf simulator a zillion podcast studios. It's going to be really cool. Some opportunities to create some really cool content. Um, but yeah, it, it's been a change, but getting used to it day by day. But this office is the real deal. It's going to be really cool to work out of every day. And one of the notes that I had that I wanted to talk to you about, and I haven't been able to kind of get there kind of in the flow, but you run a Twitter account with like 11 billion followers, uh, estimated. I think it's closer to 80,000, but how do you find content to be interesting or through the al- up the alley of that wide of an audience? I think it's holding myself to the same way I hold myself on the show and in person, just on social media, right? Any weird thoughts that I have probably aren't shared by many people at the company just because of my background and how different it is. So the way I hold myself on a speaking role on the show I do on social media too. 
one of my favorite things on Twitter to brag about is score gummies, which in NFL, in the NFL world, it's a score that's never happened before in NFL history. And I get very excited when that happens. I'm the only person in the company who gets really excited about that. So the way I talk about it on part of my take, I bring that to Twitter and share with my followers as well. Just like the uniqueness and weirdness of my brain uh, translates from in person to on Twitter. When you have a following of 80,000 people, I'm sure not everything is nice 100% of the time. Do you even read like your replies? And obviously you check your DMs. That's how I got in touch with you. But uh, I imagine, A, it's just a huge volume that takes a lot of time. And Twitter can be a nasty place sometimes. How do you kind of balance being being accessible and you know interactive with uh, keeping your own sanity? Yeah, I think with as many good things that come with social media, it can be very, it can be a very toxic and dangerous place too. Um, especially in the burner account world. A lot of people just hide behind fake avatars and accounts with four followers and will just tweet at you the nastiest things you can think of because they have nothing to lose because you don't know who they are and they know everything about you and you don't know anything about them. Um, So you try to tune out as much of it as possible. Um, But it's interesting because, yes, people can be very supportive on Twitter and you'll get the negative things, but... In person, I've been lucky enough to meet hundreds, if not thousands, of part of my take fans over the years. And I have not had one negative interaction with anybody. Everybody is as nice as you can be in person. That just shows that social media, Twitter is not real. 99.9% of the people would not say the things they're saying, the negative things to you online. They would not say that to you in person. It's just it's just how it works. Um, that's how the internet is. And you learn to just become numb to some of it. Um, but all the in-person interactions have been nothing but positive. And we're, we're very fortunate that we have the fan base that we do at part of my take, because this show would not be as big as it, as it was uh, if it weren't for them. We call them award-winning listeners for a, a reason uh, every year. They're the best. How many DMs do you get on an average day? I would guess like the 10 to 15 range. Okay, so that's not so average, bad. On an average day, yeah. If it's like me tweeting out a question like, where in Chicago should I play golf? Like, it'll probably be, probably be much higher that day. Um, but on a day like today, standard Thursday, I, I'd say around that range. What is your favorite broadcast horror story? And we ask this to uh, everyone on the podcast if – You've listened to it in the past. You probably knew this was coming. Um, but just a story, of nothing that was actually horrific, but just a situation where everything went wrong or really inconvenient things happened that we complain and whine about as broadcasters. NCAA tournament 2019, Vermont versus Florida State. Luckily, it was during our pregame show, I believe. But we just went out. We lost connection for a few minutes. And that, at that point, was the biggest broadcast of my career. Uh, that was tough. And then this past summer, it was the PLL on ESPN. We were about to go live, and the whole stadium in Fairfield just lost power. And we missed the opening face-off and the open. 
and spend so much time writing the script and prepping for the open and the rundown and working with the great crew and the truck. And then you just throw that away. And then a few minutes later, you're just back on calling the game. Uh, so technical difficulties are part of the business though. And that I'm, I'm glad both of those things happen because as I try my best to climb up the ladder in this industry, um, going through those pieces of adversity will only help me going forward. What's the weirdest broadcast position or press box that you've been in? Ooh, weirdest press box or position. Man, that's a good one. Miami football, they put you in the corner. So that's always tough, calling football radio from the corner end zone. Um, Notre Dame lacrosse, we were in the press box. So there was no... We were in the press box like it was me, my broadcast partner, and then a bunch of writers. So <laughs> I felt like guilty screaming when Syracuse would score a goal. But I would just get the weirdest looks when that was happening. <laughs> uh, who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to or watch when you have a day off or are just kind of turning it off and acting as a fan? Yeah. I mean, I'm a little bit biased, but all the Syracuse guys are fantastic. I love Ian Eagle. Uh, Mike Tirico, obviously doing great things with Sunday Night Football. Dave Cash. Uh, Jason Benetti's phenomenal. Non-Syracuse guys. Joe Davis. I mean, talk about passing of the torch with Joe Buck in the World Series. He is so good. Just watching this past World Series with the Rangers and the D-backs. He's so confident. He's so calm. I really love what he does. Kevin Harlan, I probably has the best voice, just like the coolest voice, especially I'm a Dolphin fan calling him or watching him call the Dolphins put up 70 on the Broncos. It was pretty cool, and he just gets so excited. Um, so I don't know if I have a true number one. and That's probably a cop-out answer, but I just try to be 10% of what those guys are every day. Kevin Harlan has a voice that basically violates all the rules of the things they tell you not to do with the growling and uh, some of the stuff, but just makes it work in such a great way. I, I agree 100% with what you said right there. But what about broadcasting specifically? So chasing this uh, unique industry where there's a lot of you know potential frustration and I think pains and over-exaggeration, but frustration and disappointment what about it do you love what brings you joy it's the rush and the thrill of walking into the stadium the arena and you have hours and days and weeks of prep ready in your pocket and i can't really explain it but i'm sure anyone else who's called a game before knows what i'm talking about just the rush of calling a game is, is unlike anything I've ever felt before. It's just so cool. Uh, for me specifically, I feel like there's like a, an on and off switch where you just get into a mode that is unlike anything I've ever, ever felt before. And it's just so much fun. And to be able to do this as a career, I'm very fortunate there's hopefully more opportunities to come. It's just an incredible experience. We're coming up on 
basketball season. So we'll make this a basketball-specific question since you used to be uh, D1 uh, voice of University of Vermont. What do your basketball boards look like? And take us through your prep process for a game. Yeah, so uh, it's a template that was passed down through my friend Josh Chappelle uh, from South Florida, and then a bunch of us at Syracuse use the same template. I still use the same one to this day. So the Syracuse people have to rely on a South Florida guy. (laughs) I guess you could say that, (laughs) yeah. I I don't know how many people still use it, but I I relied on it. Um, But it's basically got everything you can imagine about each person, height, weight, hometown, high school, every stat, uh, every nugget, Ken Palm, last year history, series history. Uh, I've got the starting five. I got a few reserves and then I've got the end of bench guys, uh, coaching section as well. But that's everything. Anyone who's who's listened to this, who's called a game before knows that without your charts, without your boards, there's really not much you can do. So you try to cram everything you possibly can think of onto those sheets because when the cameras come on and everything's rolling, that's all you got. You got the game and you've got your charts. That's it. What year were you born? 1995. Okay. So you do not remember this game, but I am a Nebraska fan and you said you grew up a diehard Florida fan. And I just, every time I talk to a Florida fan, right, like to remind them about the 1995 Orange Bowl if they were uh, around for that. But you were around, but probably not paying very close attention to Tommy yeah, Frazier breaking tackles from every person on your team. Yeah, exactly. What is your, I guess, what's next? Do you have any kind of future plans beyond what you're hoping to accomplish? What is your long-term goal? Yeah, my long-term goal is to call a Final Four or a Super Bowl or anything of that caliber for a network one day. I know that's everyone's long-term goal, but I'm trying to focus on one step at a time. Uh, obviously, just moved out here to Chicago with the part of my take crew. Um, so excited to see what the near future holds. But every day, I'm still very eager, very active in searching uh, for the next play-by-play opportunity. Big Cap, PFC, and the crew, they're very generous and flexible with that that goal I have and they know if any broadcasting opportunity comes up they won't make it an issue and I'll be able to maybe miss a show here or there uh, and be able to continue climbing up that ladder and chasing that dream so hopefully I can get my foot in the door with uh, some of the big networks uh, over the next year or two and keep getting more and more reps I I love getting the reps I love getting more opportunities to call games. As we mentioned, in a few days, I'll get the doubleheader for college basketball, but I'm looking for a higher volume to call play-by-play. So uh, hopefully that comes in the near future. Have you been able to go back to Syracuse and uh, speak to younger students at all? Yeah. So this past February, I went up with some friends for a Syracuse Duke basketball game, and I stopped by the Newhouse Studios, and they were doing a pregame show, and I spoke to a handful of students, and that was when I was a student. That was one of, if not my favorite parts and perks about going to new houses. When the alumni would come back and speak to you and give you as much time as uh, you needed and advice and listen to your tapes and build those connections. 
so being on the other side of that earlier this year was really cool and looking forward to going back and doing it as often as the students need. All right. Well, once again, we are visiting with Jake Marsh. He is from uh, Barstool Sports, a contributor to their written content. He's on the Pardon My Take podcast with Big Cat and PFT commenter also. And Stool Streams play-by-play where he brings you riveting play-by-play of Jenga and Cornhole as well as um, play-by-play of all kinds of different stuff uh, around the country. And Jake, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Logan. Really appreciate the time. Looking forward to keeping in touch. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you prefer by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days by looking up radio underscore Logan. Even though I haven't been on the radio in <laughs> very much in a long time, I still have that Twitter handle. And you can follow me there. That's where I post about anything involving the show. And we always love honest feedback, including Apple Podcast reviews, which help us make the show better. And maybe more importantly, it feeds my ego. So give me a review and help me build my personal self-esteem. That's very helpful to me. I don't know if it... fixes the algorithm or anything but anyway last but not least please reach out to our guests follow them on social media and let them know you appreciate their appearance on the podcast as always i'm your host logan anderson and the next time you're on the air make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more hey thanks for listening to the say the damn score podcast my name is matt cundall and if you enjoyed logan's show you might like my show the sound off podcast It's the podcast about broadcast, and we interview people behind the microphones in radio, television, and voiceover, as well as the newer forms of media like podcasting and video streaming. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at soundoffpodcast.com.